Amen. Thank you, musicians. And uh, what a blessing. What a blessing. Let's get our Bibles out. We're going to start a new series this morning uh, called Re. Every week we're going to uh, re-examine something. Uh, so today we're going to re-examine, even though on the screen it's going to say re-evaluate. But Luke chapter 9, page 1194, uh, this will be a series where we're going to talk about some things that will be familiar to a lot of you, will be a little bit new to some of you, but it's going to challenge us to, uh, to rethink, to re-examine, to uh, just to, to step back, take in the Scripture, um, realize what the Lord has called us to in this life, uh, what living on purpose really looks like. These are things that are embedded into the fiber and the DNA of who we are as a fellowship. Uh, they uh, permeate everything that we do. And as people come into this faith family, uh, sometimes it can be a little bit uh, overwhelming to acclimate yourself to life in this body. And so we're, we're going to spend the next six weeks uh, talking about uh, these various ways that God has called us to live our lives uh, a very, in a very purposeful way. So let's pray. Make sure that you have a uh, listening guide so you can fill out uh, the blanks along the way. Many of you be using this as a discussion guide in your Sunday school class. And so the reason for that is we're just being a blessing giving uh, some of our Sunday school teachers a six-week break so they're not uh, having to prepare, but they're able to be able to study ahead, look ahead, just sort of catch their breath. It's, uh, it can be a daunting task teaching Sunday school week in and week out, and so this is just a simple way that we can uh, return the blessing back. Let's pray, and then we'll look together at Luke chapter 9. Father God, we thank you for your word. God, we receive it as the perfect and errant gift that it is. We know, Lord, that it is intended for us, that you spoke this word, and that, Lord, it's relevant and meaningful today in this very place. We thank you for how you have used your scripture in our lives and how you have built this family upon the word of God. We thank you for it, Lord. We pray now that you give us ears to hear and hearts to receive, that we might glorify you by the hearing of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So let's just talk for a moment about life on purpose. You're going to need a, 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 a definition, if you will, or a way of understanding as we move forward. So life on purpose is about intersecting gospel intentionality into our everyday routines. So really what we're going to be discussing over these six weeks are ways that you can intentionally infuse the gospel into your daily routine, that God has called us to be something uh, that all of us are different and unique and gifted in special ways. And uh, so he's called us individually to all sorts of things, but he's called us collectively. What we're going to be talking about are the things that God has called all of us to equally and universally, every believer. And so that's life on purpose. Um, we'll let me give you a few uh, statistics that will sort of help you uh, understand a few things. Well, before we get to that, let me, let me say this. If you read the New Testament, if you, if you read the Old Testament, you'll find the same thing. But if you read the New Testament, you will not get far before it becomes very apparent to you that Jesus was not only on a mission but that all the people that were around him were being incorporated into this mission and then sort of instructed and utilized in the same mission. That there's, there's this repetitive pattern over and over. It's there in all the Gospels. It's there throughout the book of Acts. It's there through the uh, life and ministry of Paul. It's there all the way through the Scripture, this constant reminder that something is afoot. There's a, a, it's not only a God on a mission, but it's a God on a mission to raise up people who will then assume responsibility for that mission. And when we say, well, God, I know God has a plan for my life. 
We, we like to say that, and it's true, and it's wonderful. And God does have a plan for your life, and God does have a plan for my life. And those plans, in some ways, are the same, but in many ways, they're unique and different. And a lot of times when we say that, what we mean is, well, God has a unique plan for me. But there are some things that we need to sort of lay out and just agree upon uh, that Scripture would affirm over and over. Like if you want to write this down, like in the margin of your notes there, you can write Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Mark 16, 15. Mark 16, 15. Luke 24, 46 through 48. John chapter 17, which is the high priestly prayer, and Acts 1.8. There's five places where you find what we would refer to as the Great Commission. Five places where God is, is calling us. He's, he's reminding us of this universal call that's upon all of His people's lives. And this call... Uh, revolves around the issue of making disciples. And, you know, when you start having conversations with people about making disciples, there's a lot of confusion about, well, exactly what does that mean? Uh, what, what does it mean to make disciples? How exactly do you do that? Well, we're going to spend some time talking about it and make sure that we're all, again, on the same page and reminded of what it is to make disciples. But let me suffice it to say this this morning, that... Disciple-making is the only activity that you can participate in this life that you won't be able to do better in heaven. It's the only thing that you can do in this life that you will not be able to do better in heaven. It's the only spiritual activity that won't be enhanced in heaven. You see, disciple-making will be irrelevant in heaven. This is your opportunity, your only opportunity for all of eternity to engage in disciple-making is now. Because when this life, which is like a vapor, the Bible says, passes, then the opportunity for disciple-making passes as well. So Jesus has a purpose, your next blanks, Jesus has a purpose for everyone who follows Him. And so by that, I don't just mean that he has an individual purpose. I mean, it's sort of a play on words that I also mean he has this purpose for everyone. Emphasis on the word everyone who follows him, who is his. And then God's purpose is for, is for us is to make disciples. His purpose for us is to make disciples. Now, I'm going to share some statistics with you. Um, these are the latest statistics I could get my hands on. And uh, every time I, every couple of years, I share some of these statistics. And every time I do, they don't get better. They get more troubling. Uh, our evangelical population in the United States, we're just talking about this country that was founded on... Uh, the principles of God's Word and the freedom to worship Him. We lose 2.6 million people per decade. 2.6 million people every decade. The evangelical population shrinks. The, the amount of people that are evangelical reduce 2.5 million every decade. Now, if God has a purpose... And his purpose is to make disciples. I would say we're losing ground. Would you not agree? We're going in the wrong direction. A thousand, one thousand Southern Baptist churches close their doors every year. So what that means is, is that every single Sunday that we come into this place and have a service, there are 19 Southern Baptist churches that are having their farewell service every single Sunday. 19, the, the lights are out, the power's disconnected, the doors are locked, and the building becomes an apartment complex or is torn down or 
Who knows? The percentage of Southern Baptist churches that report zero baptisms. 25%. One in four report zero baptisms for the last 12 months. Now understand, if I broadened these statistics out beyond the SBC, they would be far more shocking. The Southern Baptist Convention is not only the largest evangelical denomination in the world, but it's also the the most advancing. And I'm giving you statistics of the leading evangelical denomination in the world, the most active, the, the most productive, the most engaged. What percentage of churches say that they'd baptize no youth None in a 12-month period. 60%. 60%. 6 of 10 churches in 12 months baptized no youth. And then maybe the most staggering of all, the percentage of churches that reported one or fewer Young adult baptisms. Somebody between 18 and 29. 80%. Now that's shocking to us, isn't it? Because we don't, we don't live in that world. That's not the world that we experience. And it's not because of us, but it's because of Him. But it's not the world that we live in. And I want to just share a few things with you. Um, You know, when we started this journey together, and when I say we started this journey, I mean when me and you started this journey five years ago, a little, you know, over five years ago, with me as your senior pastor, we... Uh, we endeavored to, to, to do some things that we felt like God had called us to do. And they weren't easy things. And there's about 200 of you that are involved in Sunday school now that weren't here when we started that journey. And of course, there are people along the way that were here that aren't here for various reasons. And there's always, you know, addition and subtraction along the way. But As of right now, there's about 200 people in Sunday school that weren't here then. Now, over the course of those years, we've baptized over 300 people. That's a lot of people. And in the course of seeing all that God has done... There's also this understanding that sometimes it can be hard to go to church here. Sometimes uh, when people come here and they uh, first get involved, there, there's, a, there's, there's a, a process of uh, assimilation or acclimation where, you know, for most people, especially if you're Um, not new to church. If you're new to church, it's actually easier. If you're not new to church, it can be really challenging because you think to yourself, this isn't the way I'm used to going to church. It's hard to go to church here. It's like we never take our foot off the gas pedal. We read the Bible and we read the difficult, hard things the Bible says and we believe that the Bible is true. And we believe that if God said it, that's the way it is. And so if He's called us to do something, no matter how impossible it may seem, that's what we should do. And that can be a scary thing. It can be a scary journey. And the reason that uh, the journey has been the way it is, is that early on, so many of you uh, bought into this vision and, and and really embraced everything that God has called us to, to be a, a disciple-making people. I mean, we, 
We, we devoted ourselves to be a church that makes disciples at home and across the street and around the world. Now that was before we were actually doing that, that we devoted ourselves to do that. And, and not knowing exactly what that would look like or how difficult that would be or how challenging or how hard or whatever the case may be. But I want to show you some things in Scripture this morning. And I, I just want to paint a picture for you so that, um, so that those of you that have been on this journey will be reminded of how we got here. And those of you that are new to this journey will be at least encouraged to know where we are. And then at least you'll be able to uh, have an idea of what you're in for if you decide to commit yourself to the journey that we're on. Look at... Uh, Luke chapter 9, and I want to show you how the chapter begins. I want to give you some context out of Luke 9. The chapter begins in verse 1. Then Jesus called the twelve disciples together, and He gave them power and authority over demons to cure diseases, and He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And so the chapter opens with Jesus calling His disciples to Himself and sending them out. That's the, the beginning of... Luke chapter 9. Then go to the end of the chapter. The very end, verse 51. Luke 9, verse 51. The Bible says, Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And look at verse 52. And sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a, a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. And so what we see in the beginning of Luke 9 is that Jesus is equipping. He equips those He sends. We see a picture of that. At the end of Luke 9, we see He's still sending. And where is He sending? He's sending to the, the, the most broken, the most unreached, the most rejected people, the Samaritans. People that you wouldn't normally go to. He sends them to those who are in great need. And then if you just push your eyes down into chapter 10, you see how the next chapter Begins And after these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also, and He sent them two by two before His face into every city and place where He Himself was about to go. In other words, are you seeing a trend here? That Jesus, if you cannot read very long in the New Testament before you see Jesus is gathering people and He's uh, testing them and then He's sending them. There's this process of him constantly just sort of uh, sifting out all those that are uh, around him, all the spectators, all the followers, finding those who are going to be uh, disciples. And then once he, he, he sifts them out, he sends them to go and to do something. And so we're going to focus our time in Luke 9 this morning at verse 57 and following. And I want you to see... Uh, a case study, if you will, of three individuals that are within the context of Jesus doing all of this sending. And I want us to, to look at these three individuals and I want to consider uh, who they are and the way Jesus reacted and responded to them and what is really going on. Look at Luke 9, verse 57 and following. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds have, of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And then another said, uh, he said to them, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. And Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now here's what I want you to see about that passage. Here's three people who come to Jesus and they say, Lord, I want to follow you. I mean, I want, I want to follow you. I want in on this thing. I mean, I'm, I, I've been sort of, you know looking around and seeing how this all works and I've seen the things that you do and and I want to follow you. And all three times, it seems like Jesus is trying to discourage them from following Him. 
In other words, Jesus doesn't say, when they say, Lord, I want to follow, He doesn't say, well, come on. Welcome aboard. So glad you're here. He immediately bombs them with bad news. As if to say, you really need to think about whether this is something you want to do or not. In other words, Jesus is setting an example for us about disciple making. About what we do as Christians and why we do it and how we do it. And, and, and maybe, maybe you're relatively new to this faith family and you, you know, have, have wondered to yourself, you know. I mean, sometimes uh, it seems, you know, Pastor Tony, like you're, you're making it hard. Well, I'm not just making it hard for, for the sake of being hard. I'm just trying to do what God's called us to do. See, He's called us to a mission, and the mission is hard. And so when people show up and say, you know, hey, I want to be on this mission, what would be wrong would be to say, hey, welcome aboard. And not explain to them, not give them some understanding of really what you're in for. Because here's the thing, I... We, what we want to know is, we, we want to know that somebody is committed to the cause before we get in the trench, right? I don't want to be in the trench fighting for my life and then realize that I'm down in the trench with people who really aren't committed to this thing. And so, we don't skirt around difficult topics. We don't make excuses for why we don't do things that the Bible calls us to do. I mean, you don't. You don't do that. And yet God continues to bless. He continues to remind us that in a lot of ways we are a peculiar people. And we serve a peculiar God who tries to talk people out. Of following him. Now, now, who are these three individuals? I mean, it just doesn't name any of them. It really doesn't. The Bible doesn't tell us anything about these three people. Uh, we notice some similarities. You notice that all three of them referred to Jesus as Lord. That's important. The reason why I showed you the context of the beginning of Luke 9, the end of Luke 9, and the beginning of Luke 10 is so you could sort of see the context that you've got people who are following Jesus. These aren't people that are uh, way out on the periphery. These are people that, are, that have been sort of following Him. These are, these are followers. They're candidates to be disciple makers. And they've, they've come to Jesus, maybe a little prematurely. We're not sure. We're not told that. But they come to Jesus and they say, Well, Jesus, I want to be part of this process. And Jesus kind of almost pushes back a little bit and says, well now, let's re-examine what we're doing here. Let's make sure that we're, we're on the, the same page. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to re-examine. I'm going to give you three reasons not to live your life on purpose. So that by the end of this morning, you'll be able to make a, 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 an informed decision about where you, where you land. You know, maybe, maybe you've been visiting for a while and you, you haven't planted your life here. You haven't joined here. You've been sort of, you know, thinking about it. You've been on the fence a little bit. Well, maybe this morning I might talk you straight on out of that decision. I mean, after this morning, you might say, man, I'm out of here. Well, Amen. At least you know who we are and what we're about. Number one, the first reason why you might not want to live your life on purpose is your resources and your reputation are at stake. Your resources and your reputation are at stake. Now let's look at the first individual in verse 57. 
Now it happened as they journeyed on the road, the Bible says, that someone, just someone, said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Man, that sounds like a, a, a great, awesome opportunity for God. You would think God would just stop what he was doing and be so excited that, that someone said that. Now Luke doesn't tell us anything about this man, but interestingly enough, this account is also in Matthew chapter 8. And notice what Matthew says about this same account in verse 19. Then a certain scribe came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. So what we find out is that this is a scribe. That this man is actually an expert in the law. We know a lot of things about scribes. We know that most of them were not running around following Jesus and saying, Lord, I will follow you wherever we go. We know that in Mark 12, Jesus said, as he was teaching, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces. They have the best seats in the synagogues and the best places at the feast. They devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Jesus said these will receive greater condemnation. So what we know about scribes is that they are religious leaders. They're respected members of society. They're people who are experts in the law. They're people who love the fact that they get a, a preeminent position at any religious gathering. They get a lot of perks that go along with being a scribe. And so here's somebody who has all of this wisdom, all of this uh, understanding of the Scripture, who's an expert in the Old Testament, who then comes and says to Jesus, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. You would think, well, what a great opportunity. I mean, this isn't, you know, it's not like me when I got saved where you're starting from zero, but here's somebody who has a firm foundation, who has all of this knowledge and understanding of, of the, the Old Testament. So when they become a Christian, think of how far ahead they would start out. And Jesus' response is, verse 58, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. Well now, praise the Lord, that's encouraging. Who says that? What kind of evangelistic tactic is that? Jesus says to this scribe, He says, here's the deal, pal. I know you're a scribe, and I know you like all the perks that come with being a scribe. Well, if you want to follow me, uh, all that's about to come to a screeching halt. It's as if Jesus is saying, are you sure you want to follow me? Are you sure? You may have to sacrifice your comfort and your worldly security if you do. You see, the, the, the scribes had had used their influence in society to create all of these uh, ways that were financially beneficial to them for being a scribe. And that's the reference that uh, Jesus makes in Mark 12 about them devouring widows' homes. And so Jesus says to this man, who seems as sincere as a person can be, are you sure you want to follow me? Are you sure about that? Because if you do... You may have to sacrifice your comfort and your worldly security. There's not going to be any long robes. There's not going to be any best seats or feasts. In fact, really, the only guarantee that you have is that I'll be with you wherever you go. That's the only guarantee you have. You know, I think it would be foolish to to sign up for something like this unless I knew ahead of time what I was getting myself into, don't you? Then, I mean, if you, if you become a part of this family, this is true for you. That you know what? You better really think about it because you may have to sacrifice comfort and worldly uh, pleasures and security. The people that are sitting around you, chances are, a lot of them have already 
sort of faced this hurdle and been through this process, this realization that really we're not a place of cultural Christianity here. We just aren't. We're not, we're not going to appeal to the masses. That's not who we are. We want you to know up front it's going to be hard and it's going to be costly. And that we're, we're not interested in calling ourselves Christians, carrying Bibles in the door with us, but not actually reading them and obeying them and following the things that they say. That's just not who we are. And there's a lot of places that are that way. And if that's what you're looking for, well, then this is not that place. It's just not that place. And Jesus is saying to this person as, as honestly as he can, listen, if you, if you want to check a box, if, if you want to follow me and, and you know, drop some money in the offering plate, but let somebody else you know, do the hard things, let somebody else you know, really live it out, you know what I mean? You just want to kind of be a spectator along the way. Well then, I'm not the one for you. That's what he's saying. And I think what you say every, with every passing year is you say, you know what, we're a family that's like that. That's what you say. You don't get to see the faces that I get to see because you're all facing the same way. But I get to see the new faces. I get to see the, the eyebrows go up and the... Hmm. You know, I get to see the, you know, 25 minutes, they start looking at their watch. I'm thinking, dude, you might as well put that sucker away. <laughs> they ain't going to do you no good 25 minutes. It's just not how we roll. But there's a lot of places that do roll that way. But when you come in, here's the deal. We, we say, well, foxes have... Holes and birds have nests and a lot of us, we're not worried about if we have a place to lay our head down or not. All we care about is, is Jesus with us. That's what we're focused on. And we're just going to go. We're just going to do it. We're not going to worry about it. We're just going to be what God called us to be. See, here's a question that you have to, I, we have to ask ourselves these questions every once in a while and just it's just realize how easily we're influenced by culture and society. I mean, Christian culture. What is the result of faithfulness to Jesus? Just think about this for a second. What is the result of faithfulness to Jesus? Does it mean life's going to get better? Does it mean life's going to get easier? Now you're starting to get an idea of why few people are preaching this message. It doesn't land very well, does it? I mean, basically, Bible-believing, Bible-practicing Christians make the worst uh, advertising people in the world. Hey, come join us. It's going to get tougher. Praise the Lord. It's like Jesus is saying this. If you decide to follow me, you will have less than you have now. Now I want you to just think about this for a second. Jesus' response to this man is, if you paraphrase what he said... In today's vernacular, it would be, if you follow me, you're going to have less than you have now. That's what he's telling him. Really? You're God. Yeah, I realize that, but that's, that's the economy of the kingdom. That's how it works. Obviously, spiritually, you're going to have infinitely more. I'm talking about in a, in a worldly sense. You're going to have less than you have now. Yes. We make fun of ourselves all the time. I make fun of myself all the time. 
I make fun of the fact that, you know, uh, my flesh has all the natural desires that uh, fallen flesh has. And so, I, you know, we make jokes. I make jokes with my family and with my friends about, you know, just uh, seeing things and going, oh, wow, I wish I could have that. And then, you know, joking, well, I could have that. I could buy that. No problem. I would tell my kids this all the time. They would go, oh, you know, son, you know, I, I wish I had that. And I'd go, well, you could have that. You know, if your mom and dad quit tithing, you could have that. No problem. Is that what you want us to do? Uh, but it's a good, it's a good practice to look at something that your flesh desires and to say, now that's nice. That would, be, that would be nice to have, but it's not that nice. If you follow Him, you're going to have less than you have now. I think it's something you should think about. Because people who work with you and live in your neighborhood and are related to you, they're going to think you're crazy. They're going to think you're crazy if you follow him. Second reason why you might not want to live your life on purpose is your religion must die. Your religion must die. Notice what happens with the second individual. Verse 59, then another comes to Jesus. Uh, Then he said to another, follow me. And he answered, Lord, well, let me first go and bury my father. Now, again, this seems kind of strange. Like, now, wait a minute. You know, I mean, of all the excuses you give to not, you know, follow me right now, like I'm in, but I mean, I need to go say goodbye to my father. Like, that's important. Like, who's not going to give you a pass for that? But you have to, you have to really look at this and think about what is really going on here. If you, if you look at this closely, if you examine the words in the original language, if you think about the culture in which they're spoken in, what becomes clear is that this man's father is not dying or hasn't died yet. In other words, what this man is saying is sort of the same thing that we would say when somebody uh, gets diagnosed with a serious disease and they would say, you know, the doctor would tell them here's the treatment plan and here's the survival rate and so on and so forth. And then we would say, well, you know, I'm going to fight this because I want to walk my daughter down the aisle. Now, your daughter may be 10 years old. But we understand that doesn't necessarily mean that your daughter's engaged or about to be married or anything. It just, it, you're just saying that it, there's this thing in the future that I want to do. And so what would happen in this culture is, is that the oldest son would, at the, upon the death of the father, would take control of, the, of, of the, the assets of the family and then would then lead the family forward. And so this man is saying, well, I want to follow you too, but I need to hang around until my dad dies so that I can take possession of all the stuff and do what people are supposed to do. It's more of a cultural response that he's saying. It's an expression uh, of religious commitment, of this, this, this cultural norm that had creeped its way into religion and become part of religion. It's like a, it's like a, 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 a law of man, if you will. So, even though the Bible never commands this, nowhere in the Old Testament or the New Testament uh, is there a command for a son to do this, that he has to remain at home until his father dies? No. It's treated in this culture as if it were Scripture. And so Jesus says, notice the response in verse 60, Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Now, it sounds like, well, he's saying he's going to, 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 
to, to bid farewell or he's going to, to bury his father. And Jesus is saying, well, no, let the dead bury the dead. Not meaning that his father is dead, meaning that his father is spiritually dead. The spiritually dead. Those who do not follow me. Those who aren't believers in me. Those who aren't born again. Let them, let them bury their own. Now, when you think about this issue of religion, there's always been an abundance of people who are more than willing to commit themselves to religion. Always. You see, religion is easy. The world has always been filled with people who are willing to commit themselves to religion, but few who will commit themselves to Jesus. There's a huge difference between saying, I want to be religious and saying, I'm going to follow Jesus. You see, religion is a system. Jesus is a relationship. And why is it that we love religion so much? Why does the human heart love religion? Because religion is containable. Religion is, is, has parameters. Religion is you tell me the system, and then I'll figure out how to win. Religion is here's the rules of the game. Now you prepare yourself to, to, to go to victory. That's religion. But with Jesus, you're following a person. You're in a relationship with someone. And so it's fluid. And so you're, it's changing and you're growing and it's scary and you don't always know where it's leading. You don't know where God's taking you to. You're not, you're not sure what He might do. It takes faith. You see, it doesn't take any faith to practice religion. None. All I need to know is what's the parameters of the religion and then I just go forward in it. But relationship is a whole different ballgame. You see, this man... His religious commitment was actually his reasoning for not following Jesus at this present time. He said, Lord, I'll follow you, but, but I've got this, this man-centered thing, this cultural thing that I need to take care of that everybody in my society thinks is the, the thing that, that we ought to do. That's part of my religious structure. And rather than Jesus saying, well, well, no, stupid, where did you read that? He didn't do that. He just said, let the dead bury their own. You see, your religion is the safest place you'll ever be. Sometimes people come from a very religious background into a place like this. And sometimes... Maybe a lot of times that's one of the most shocking transitions that a person can make. Because when you're accustomed to religion, you, you, have, you feel secure and you, you sort of know what to expect and you know what the parameters are. And so there's really, there's no risk in religion. It's very, very safe. And here's the thing, it's safer than non-religion because in religion, you're, you've convinced yourself that everything's going to be okay, that by practicing these, this system that you've laid out, it's going to make everything okay. So it really deceives you. Into, so it's really the safest place you could ever be is religious. Then you come into a place like this and it scares you half to death. You're thinking, these people are nutso. They're crazy. I mean... They're going all over the world. They're, they're going all these dangerous places. They, they, they are, I mean, they spend a fifth of their budget, if not more, every year on uh, great commission work. They, the church is flooded with children that aren't even related to anybody here. And not only that, they have all sorts of problems. Like it's the hardest possible thing you could ever... Who would want to do that? You're nuts. You could be religious somewhere else. It'd be so easy. You just waltz in, waltz out. Man, no strings attached. Give a few bucks. Let somebody else do it. Be entertained. Something a little warm and fuzzy and everything's good. No one's ever going to call you crazy for being religious. You notice that? Even in this crazy world we live in today, the, the, the media exalts religion. 
Oh, they ex- I mean, religious religion is awesome. As long as you just, as long as it's just everyone accepts all this religion, it's awesome. We're, we're, we're even afraid we won't even say that any religion is bad. No, you can't say that. No, they're, all religions are good. Even if they blow us up and think that that gets them to heaven. Well, but that, no, that, that's not bad. Really? No, because, because the, 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 the unredeemed heart loves religion. But when you follow Jesus... When you are on His mission, everyone around you is going to think you've lost your mind. You're crazy. So maybe you, you ought to reconsider. Maybe you ought to reevaluate this morning. Because if you, if you join Jesus on this mission, if you begin to live your life on purpose, your religion is going to have to die. It's going to have to die. All your parameters are going to have to leave. The third reason that you may not want to live your life on purpose is your relationships must change. And in the South and in the Bible Belt, this may be the most difficult of the three. It's this third individual that comes up to Jesus in verse 61. The Bible says, And another one also said, Lord, I will follow you. But let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. Now, I mean, if going to bury your dad, I mean, come on. Now, that, if, if that's not good reason for Jesus to just say, sure, I got that, I understand. Then what about just, I just want to go home and, and say goodbye to the people Closest to me. And again, Jesus, the author of this mission of making disciples, the one who people flock to, the the author and finisher of all faith, he responds to this person by saying in verse 62, No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. I can assure you, you will never find Luke 9.62 in any evangelistic uh, program you've ever read or purchased at Lifeway. Now, we're here to uh, visit you from Michael Memorial. We just wanted to tell you that... uh, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom. We just kind of wanted you to know that today. That, uh, you know, if if you're considering being a part of our fellowship, if following Jesus is something that you think might be good for you, well, you know, you're you're not going to have as much as you have now. And, uh, you know, your religion is going to have to die. All your parameters are going to go out the window. And... If you put your hand to the plow and you look back, you're really not fit for the kingdom. What is Jesus saying? Well, he knows that this individual, what he's saying is, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever I go. Jesus, being God, knows that for this man to do that, he's got to make a clean break. That, I mean, you've got to... You've got to just break from the cultural religion that you've been accustomed to, that you've been bred up in. And that, that phrase, if you want to underline, bid them farewell in your Bible. Bid them farewell. Here's what that means in the Greek. It means it's a word, uh, a military word, which means to deploy a soldier or to deploy a detachment of soldiers. So it means to be deployed. It means there's going to be separation. It means that you're going to have to break from them. And Jesus saying, listen, if you go back and you don't understand what this calling is, it's, gonna, it's not going to go well. Jesus doesn't tell him not to go home and say goodbye. Do you notice that? That we sort of embed that in the Scripture. But it doesn't say that Jesus said, don't go tell your family goodbye. He doesn't say that. What He says is, don't go home and, and, and be persuaded out of following me by the people at your house, by the people closest to you. 
Jesus knew that if this man went home, that those closest to him were not going to understand. That when you go home and say, hey, mom and dad, guess what? I'm going to follow Jesus. And they're thinking, great. Well, you know, what does that mean? And then you start to tell them what you're going to do. They're like, well, wait a second. Uh, I mean, aren't you taking this a little bit too far? I mean, you don't have to be a fanatic about it, right? I mean, I can remember a few years ago. Um, I mean, I don't want to date myself, but whoo. I was, uh, there was a, a young lady that grew up in the youth group when I was the youth pastor, and um, she didn't really have a relationship with her father. And, um, you know, I just... Lisa and I just had a real close, special relationship with this young lady, and she really loved Jesus. And she really uh, would ask Jesus if uh, what he wanted her to do, even as a junior high student and through high school. And so she committed herself to uh, reading the Bible, believing the Bible, practicing the Bible for what it was. And I mean, she was radical. She just did what Scripture said. And uh, her parents didn't come to church. Her mom didn't come to church. And so one day there was some special event here. And by this point she was at the end of her high school career. And uh, her mom walked up to me and said, I am so glad I've been wanting to talk to you. And I said, oh, okay, you know, and what's going on? And she said, hey, I need you to uh, talk to my daughter. And I said, Really? Okay. Well, what's, what's going on? And she said, listen, she takes everything you say literally. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, so what's the problem? She's like, that's a problem. And I'm like, what do you mean? She goes, she's a fanatic. And I said, no, she's a Christian. She's a Christian. I remember years later, not too many years later, I performed her wedding. And at the end of the wedding ceremony, I said, uh, I said to her husband, I said, you can kiss your bride. And that was the first time they ever kissed. And uh, he's a pastor. They're both in ministry. She's a fanatic. Yeah, she's a fanatic. And I mean, her family just thought she was nuts. I mean, when uh, if if you were, which none of you are, are, well, except my mother-in-law. She's the only one that gets the infamous Carnes family Christmas letter every year that my mom produces and most of you in here know that I'm the only believer in my family and so uh, every year my mom puts together this Christmas letter and tells all the people you know that know the family everything that's been going on in the family well interestingly enough if you had gotten the letter pretty much any Christmas over the last 25 uh If my name is mentioned, it would be something about, oh, Tony and Lisa are doing fine, the kids are in school, or they're playing soccer, or, um, you know, Lisa's doing this in her career, or so on and so forth. But never, ever is there a mention of, oh, you know, Tony's pastoring. Tony graduated from seminary. Tony became the senior pastor at Michael Memorial. Tony, no. No discussion of that. Never mentioned. I mean, when, when I'm at home, I'm like some alien when I go to visit my family. I'm so different from them. And when we meet people, oh, this is your oldest son. Oh, hey, what do you do? And, you know, it's just this awkward silence. And I'm like, I'm a pastor. I love Jesus. I'm the only one here that does. But I do. 
yes, I'm part of this family, but only in theory. Jesus was warning this man. Here's his warning. Don't get distracted from the task at hand by, uh, by what others think. You can't get distracted by what other people think. You can't get off the, the trail. See, if, you're, if your hands are on a plow and you start looking behind, you're going to get off course. You're going to start plowing in a, uh, you know, your line is going to be crooked. You're going to be veering off where you're supposed to be. And here's the thing. You, you've got to understand that there's great, there's great influence in our relationships, that really the, the strongest pull on our lives are the relationships that are closest to us. That's why the Bible has so much to say about our relationships and who's very close to us and being very careful about that because we're very susceptible to being pulled off course. But you see, that, doesn't, that is insanity in this culture. It's insanity. In the South, in the Bible Belt... Listen, have you ever just thought about how crazy the gospel is to this culture we live in right here? We, we, want, our, we want our kids to grow up and stay home. We want our grandkids to be right here with us. We want everybody to just live together in a commune. That's what we like to do. We just... We just move them all in together, you know. And, and that's great and that's wonderful. That's not the gospel. Well, what if our... What if our I mean, how many times have, has God called... I mean, every, every person that God's ever called out of this fellowship to the mission field, their Christian family was like, I don't know about this. I knew you shouldn't have started going to Michael Memorial. I knew it. Eventually, yeah. Is it some kind of a cult? No. You see, the, the mission of Christ is not just counterintuitive, but it's countercultural. I mean, it's counterintuitive, it's it's insane. But it's countercultural. I mean, it, it's an understanding of Friday I was preaching over in Gauthier, and when I got done speaking, this lady came up to me, probably in her late 70s, early 80s, and uh, she said hey, I want you to meet somebody. And I was like, okay. I mean, I just met her. She said, I want you to meet somebody. And she introduced me to her grandson and his wife. And uh, she said, they're uh, going to be leaving in a couple months uh, to go permanently on the mission field in a Muslim nation. And I was like, really? That's awesome. And this grandmother was just beaming. And I said, you must be so proud. And she said, I have been praying for 50 years. That is countercultural. And I said to myself, right then and there, that's when I need to start praying. Pray that Dalton and Kayla would have some little children and that they grow up and love Jesus and pursue Him with reckless abandon and that God would find them worthy to send them on the mission field to the most remote places in the world to share the gospel. You see, when I say that, no one ever amens that statement because it's countercultural. This is what I'm telling you. See how easy religion is? This is? There's nothing easy about this. Jesus is telling these three people, listen, these aren't outsider unbelievers. These are people in the context of Him sending people out. These are followers. 
They're church attenders. And they're saying, hey, I want to join the mission. And Jesus is saying, "Ah, I don't know, man. You better think about it. I'm not sure you understand what you're getting into. You know, in Luke 10, he sends the... He sends out the 72 and they come back in verse 17 of Luke 10. Look at what it says. Then the 70, they returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. You know what strikes me about that? Is that they went on the journey that these three other people said that they wanted to go on that Jesus was sort of giving them a reality check about the journey. Here we have the 70 who actually went on the journey and came back, and the Bible says they returned with joy. They were filled with joy. Oh, yeah, their reputation and their, their relationships and their religion were all blown to smithereens, but they returned with joy. Why? I mean, just think about this for a second. Here they come back. They didn't... They didn't go, it wasn't necessarily a fun trip. They didn't get rich. They weren't economically enhanced by it. They didn't, they didn't uh, live comfortably while they were gone. They didn't, if you read all the directives that Jesus gave them, He prepared them for the difficulty of the mission. He told them, this is going to be uncomfortable. People are going to reject you. You're going to have to shake the dust off your feet. You're going to have to just eat whatever junk they put in front of you. I mean, is, the hotel's not going to be nice. The accommodations aren't going to be good. The pay's going to be horrible. Everyone's going to be against you. But you go and they return in joy. Now why? What is that? How does that add up? How does it make sense? Why would they come back in joy? The same reason that we do is because for the first time in their life they realize what it's like to actually be what God made you to be. To be a part of the mission that He created you for. You see? That's the point. Is that God made us all for this mission of disciple making. He made you to be somebody who tells people about Him. And in this context, in your, in your families, in your neighborhoods, at your workplaces, all the, wherever you go, as you go, that you make disciples and that you be willing to be a part of going wherever God sends us. That all of that together, that you're part of it. And we may not be the only place in the world, but we're the only place that I know of. I've never heard of another place where everybody gives together to send everybody so that we all do this together. And the truth is, is that five years ago when I stood up here and said, well, Here's what God's laid on my heart. Here's what I think He's calling us to do. It's not going to do us any good if only the privileged and the popular and the, and the, the special get to go. We all have got to do this together. We all have to do it. And the only way I know how is, here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking every family in this fellowship to give $30 a month above and beyond your tithe to the ISEN program so that we can equally bear some of the burden of all the people going on trips. And listen, that was the last Sunday. There were people, they, that was their last Sunday. They're gone. They're like, I'm, I'm leaving. There were so many eyebrows looking at me like, what? And I said, listen, don't take the $30 out of your tithe because God's not going to bless that. And you know what? We did. And look at what God's done. Is it easy? No. Is it crazy? Yes, I admit it. It's crazy. But that's the mission that He called us to. In Romans chapter 10, there's a series of questions Paul asks. Here's what they are. Four questions in a row. He says, How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And... How shall they believe in Him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? In other words, Paul's saying, 
How can you call on someone to save you if you don't believe in them? You can't. And how can you believe in someone that you've never heard of? You can't. And how can you hear if nobody tells you? You can't. And how will anybody deliver the message unless somebody sends them? You can't. So we, we started our service this morning. You know what you heard? You heard two people bear witness of that reality right there. That throughout those two testimonies, what you heard is that people, people were messengers in Taylor and Santa's life. And they're standing before you being baptized today because what would have happened at that low point in Santa's life had there not, but God sent this couple to say, come on, go to church with us, to start ministering to her. And then she became a Christian and see what happened. Same thing in Taylor's life. We've got to be about the mission. And we can't, we can't change. We, we can't just change who we are based on who we want to be. We have to be what God calls us to be. And so, I guess here's what I'm saying. I know it's hard, and it's going to keep being hard, because it is hard, but it's worth it. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Bible says that we're all going to stand before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ, and there's going to be this interaction. And you know what's not going to be in the conversation? There's not going to be any conversation about Jesus isn't going to say, well, so how much do you know? How much did you learn? How, how did you do on listening? It's not going to be the conversation. Everything's going to burn up except for the answer to the question, how much did you use for the kingdom? How much of your life was committed to the mission? The mission is, make no mistake about it, disciple-making. And for the next five weeks, we're going to talk about disciple-making. And it's going to be a little counterintuitive, and it's certainly going to be countercultural. But it's the greatest invitation in the world. And I wouldn't trade being on this journey with you for anything in the world. And for those of you that are new to the journey, well, you, now you know a little bit more than you did before. And if you want to bolt, we understand. But we're going to press on. Because that's what God's called us to do. Let's stand.